as I said earlier, we're going to be back in Genesis chapter 2. In spite of what your bulletin may say, I'm going to start in Genesis 2, uh, 18 through 24, and then we're going to hop back to Genesis 1, uh, 27 and 28. This message will... Um, it's really, as again, I've been saying some of these are, it's an extension of earlier messages and particularly, you know, the last week or two. And so if I just had kept on preaching for seven hours, <laughs> uh, you know, it would, it would keep going and this would tie right into it. So I'm really uh, threading a couple of passages together that we've spent some time in already. But let's open our Bible there to Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. Through 24, and then 1, 27 through 28. I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand and honor the reading of God's word as we listen attentively to his voice. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it uh, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they, they shall become one flesh. In chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for your word. We open it believing that it is true and living and active and powerful, that it's able to cut to the very center of our being and discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And we ask that you would do that for us, Lord. Would you open our ears to hear our hearts, to receive our minds, to understand what you have to say to us today. And so we pray you would speak, Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. God, I pray as always you'd move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today. For Christ's sake, amen. And you may be seated. Well, I wrote in last week's newsletter just a couple days ago that throughout the Bible, children and families are regarded as blessings. And that, again, is really the subject of this morning's message, talking about foundations for family. But I do want to make two qualifications at the, at the outset. 
And that is, as we talk about children and families, we realize that some couples have wanted to have children, but could not. Some people wanted to get married, but did not. Uh, Some people did have children, or chose not to either way, uh, look back, I mean, that's history one way or the other, and look back with some regret. And so that, in other words, when we talk about family life and we talk about ideals, the problem is none of us measures up to the ideal. And it's, so it's, it's, it's really easy for us then to think back with regret on something about um, our past. And so uh, one of the things I just want to underscore is that, uh, number one, that we're talking about ideals in the sense of in this series, what God called good and particularly how it was good for society, not just for you and me, but for y'all and us collectively. Um, And that we are kind of rebuilding the ruins, to use that metaphor again, as I did a couple of weeks ago, rebuilding the ruins according to the original blueprints, in spite of the fact that we are imperfect people working with imperfect materials in imperfect conditions of every sort. And so our, our, our life at every turn is just marked by the fallenness of the world that we're a part of. So the, my purpose is certainly not in talking about any of these things to um, lay any sense of guilt or regret on anybody, and it's certainly not, certainly not God's intention. So anything you hear of that, uh, please discard. And um, as I said at the outset of the series, in, in a similar way, this week and next, um, my resolve is not to add offense to what may be just inherently offensive about the truth at some turns. And so again, if I, if I fail in that regard, please discard any uh, offense that I would add to it. But children and families are regarded as blessings in the scriptures. And the questions I asked at the end of that short article was, do we really believe that? Or to what extent do we really hold that conviction as Christians? And what difference does it make whether we do or not? So I wanted to begin with the answer to that second question or with a partial answer to that second question with with a couple of sort of illustrations of that. Real life uh, pictures that illustrate that point. What difference does it make? The first first of those would be the Jamestown Colony. Uh, founded, as many of you know, in 1607, it would become the first permanent English settlement. And um, if you go to Jamestown, or at least I would say as of a few years ago, we took school groups there for a number of years. I, I, uh, I heard the presentation a number of times every year around the same time of the year. And uh, the way they would tell the story at the Jamestown settlement is that early on, the first several years, they struggled terribly, and you know some of the history of that. Um, famine. Uh, some of the men would not work initially, and um, they imposed some pretty strict law, and at the threat of being uh, whipped or imprisoned, some of them decided they would work. 
after all. Um, but so they, you know, early on weren't really uh, as productive as they probably needed to be. They were li- living off of, you know, supplies that uh, they brought over from England and ran out of those at different turns and that sort of thing. They were ravaged by disease and um, famine. They have had some starving years where I read, you know, as many as like 80 or 90 percent of the colonists died or the settlers died. But then uh, along the way, there were a couple of decisions that the leaders of that Virginia company, you know, that founded, had that charter or whatever, a couple of decisions they made that were change factors, a turning point. And one of those was that the men were given small parcels of land to own privately. It had been initially sort of a communal settlement where they all worked for the common produce and the common good and that sort of thing. And again, not all of them worked all that well, um, except by force. They gave people their own land um, so that they were the beneficiaries of whatever they were capable of producing. The second thing they did is that they knew that in order for it to become a permanent settlement, they needed to establish families there. In the initial years, it was mostly men. Uh, there had been some woman, women that had, had uh, come. But the way, again, on this video presentation that you would watch if you went to Jamestown Colony, it would say that the way they dramatized this is that these leaders decided at a certain point uh, sort of beyond all the things they had tried to plant in that colony, including tobacco, they decided, we'll plant families. And so they recruited very intentionally women to come over, to marry men there, and, and to begin families. And as it turned out, men owning their own property needing to provide for their own children work differently than they do when they're working uh, at the sort of end of a sword. And that was one of the, again, as they tell their own story in Jamestown, uh, those were turning points in the history of Jamestown. Did it, the reason it, one of the key reasons it was the first permanent English settlement is because they encouraged the establishment of families there. Fast forward 400 years later to contemporary America and to the contemporary Western world. And uh, we generally have a very different regard for the family. And I'm gonna, I'll I'll open this point with uh, the beginning, sharing the beginning of an article written recently by a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. He actually now pastors a uh, church in Charlotte, a Presbyterian church in Charlotte, and he's authored a number of books as well. But he wrote an article recently, uh, a few months back, called The Case for Kids. Uh, Kevin himself has nine kids. So, you know, he don't, you know, he's a paradigm buster. He, you know, you don't need to worry about sort of following that model, but he's making this argument, the case for kids. And here's how he opens that article. The most significant thing happening in the world 
may very well be a thing that is not happening. Men and women are not having children. The biblical logic has been reversed and the barren womb has said, enough. The affliction of the Old Testament is now the great desire of nations. That is not not having children. The, the, what's regarded in many cases in the Old Testament as the affliction of not being able to have children is now what many nations desire. If Rachel wanted children more than life itself, our generation seems to have concluded that nothing gets in the way of life more than children. Somewhere around 60% of the world's nations are not having enough children to replace the adults uh, of that country and, uh, and that will die eventually. That is, total fertility rate, and some of you are familiar with these, this data, you've heard it before, but total fertility rate, number of births per woman, the total fertility rate is below replacement level, as it's called. Uh, any country civilization needs to have, on average, uh, it's just over two children per woman, uh, on average, again, because some of those will die in childhood or whatever. That's kind of where that number comes from. No, you can't have 2.1 children yourself. Uh, you have to aim higher. But, but the replacement, replacement level Fertility rate is 2.1 children um, per woman. Um, about 60% of the world's nations are below that and falling. Pretty much the whole northern hemisphere. I don't know, there's, I, I don't think a, a European country that's above that. The U.S. is not above that. Canada is not above that. Um, all of them are below that and falling. And this data is readily available. You could go and do an internet search on total fertility rate and have a field day with all that you'll read from reliable sources. Some of what I was reading in preparation for this message was on the CIA's website. The CIA would regard such things as a, a national security matter. Uh, the whole world, uh, the fertility rate's about 2.3 children per woman, and that thanks to the African continent. Uh, 24 of the top 25 countries uh, with the highest fertility rates are in Africa. Interestingly enough, um, where there are higher birth rates, uh, it, is, it is mostly in the global south, where in many cases Christianity is growing also in places, of course, where uh, Islam is a majority religion. Some governments have tried to provide incentives to turn that around, and, and none of them really have been successful at that. You know, China for years had a one-child policy. They began to see, oh, that was a bad policy. And, uh, and changed that, it, and it has actually ticked up a little bit. I think they're somewhere around 1.5. But countries like Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, 
Singapore are um, abysmally low. South Korea has fallen below one child per woman and in fact in, uh, in recent years has had more deaths than births in real time. And one of the immediate consequences of that, and, and, and let, me, let me back up here and say, um, I, I'm not gonna, I've probably already said enough about that. My, my point is really not, not to cause any sense of despair over that, but it is to say, uh, here's the reality. We don't have to speculate about what the consequences of living as if God's way is not good. We don't, we don't have to speculate about that. God's told us what was good, and if we, if we live otherwise, we will, can realize the consequences of that as a civilization, and, um, and, we're, and we're seeing some of that. But uh, one of the immediate consequences of that is that you get a higher percentage of the population that's aging or aged and eventually get to the point where you've got a disproportionate part of your population living on the public kind of social security system or whatever it's called in, di in different countries. M most developed countries have something like that, but the pension system. You've got a higher percentage of people living on that system and a lower percentage of people working, paying into it. And so there's a, there's a potential economic consequence of that and there are countries now feeling some of the weight of that. And again, I'm not, uh, I don't know how that'll go and I'm not predicting uh, calamity in any of those cases. Uh, it's certainly above my pay grade. But it, but it is to say that's one of the real kind of obvious consequences of that that happens immediately. And of course, longer term, the consequence of that is if the trend continues, those countries will literally die out. Like that's how the math works. That if, if countries or if a civilization continues to have fewer children than are sufficient to replace ones that are dying, eventually that civilization dies out. And so, um, again, we see kind of as bookends of the last 400 years, an illustration in Jamestown of where affirming what God said is good and living accordingly uh, actually contributed to the fruitfulness uh, and growth of a colony and then, you know, in, in part of a nation. And then on this end, we see the opposite of that. And again, Kevin DeYoung's article, The Case for Kids, really uh, kind of expounds upon all of that. And some of you would be interested in reading that. And I would encourage you to look it up. I just want to look uh, quickly um, at these passages we've, we've been in the, the last few weeks. I just want to look at two biblical foundations for the family. We, in the sort of Christian community, a lot of... Uh, We've talked a lot about family. You know, there have been some really good um, ministries that have supported family. Think about focus on the family, family life today, and those kind of things, which, which, uh, which do provide really practical stuff about the how of family and marriage and so forth. Uh, this is really, I'm speaking more of kind of the why. I mean, very foundational stuff 
that God says about the family. And really just two points I want to make briefly here from these texts. And number one, that the institution of marriage is ordered toward having and raising children. The institution of marriage, that is God designed it uh, with his purposes in mind, and it is ordered toward having and raising children. Now, once again, some marriages are unable to produce children. That doesn't make the marriage any less valid. Again, we live in a, we live in a fallen world. That's just part of the reality. And that could be true of a young couple that can't get pregnant or an older couple that has gotten married or remarried when they're after, you know, they're beyond the childbearing years, at least the standard childbearing years, you know, if you're Abraham and Sarah, you know, go for it. But, but again, in, in either case, there are exceptions on an individual level. The point is the institution of marriage is really ordered to that purpose, having children or raising children. It's, it's impossible to disconnect God's purpose for marriage for from God's overarching purpose for humanity, which is there in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it, etc. As we said, one of the uh, earlier messages is his purposeful living. Um, he, his plan was for image bearers to fill the earth with his image. Essentially, his glory would be known in all the earth. Those first image bearers are supposed to make more little image bearers. That's the plan. And so you, 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 you simply cannot divorce, uh, no pun intended, divorce marriage, the, the subject of marriage, the institution of marriage, from his purposes for marriage, from his overarching purpose for mankind. The institution of marriage is ordered toward having and raising children. That does say something fundamentally about what marriage is and is not. Uh, namely, it's the reason why uh, those in conservative Christian circles have insisted in recent years that marriage is between a man and a woman. And, and part of the reason for that, again, I'm, not, I'm, I'm really not trying to add offense here, but simply to add clarity here. Because there's something that the Bible reveals about what is the inherent goodness of marriage. And it is the fact that man and woman come together. They are companions, but also complementary companions, if you remember from last week. They are not just like each other, they are like opposite each other such that they are made to fit one another, corresponding to one another. It has a physical meaning, and it has a spiritual meaning as well. But the institution of marriage is ordered to that purpose. Secondly, uh, family is the most basic social unit through which God accomplishes his will. That's a lot of words. Let me see if I... Uh, can just explain what I mean by that because this is really implicit in the text uh, rather than explicit. But if we 
if we stand in Genesis 1 and 2 and sort of you, you look into the future at what would happen even if there had been no sin, well, it would be that uh, Adam and Eve would have children. And they would multiply and there would be, there would be children filling the earth. And in either way, you've got the growth of society, of a social order. It predicts, you know, the, the development of not just individual family units, but tribes and cities, nations, governments, educational institutions, and so on that would all be downstream of that. But family is the most basic of those. All the, all the social units, all the social institutions that would come downstream of that Family is the most basic one through which God accomplishes his will. Maybe another picture of that was to say, if we think about government, we have a, a federal government, a national government, or whatever. We have a state government. We have county government. We have city government. And I'm suggesting we have family government. I think that's, that's God's plan. It's not called that, of course, but it's just to say, there, as, a, as a, a unit of social order, God has created the family. And that analogy actually holds pretty well because in a family you have laws, right? We call them rules, but we have laws and we have law makers. Supposed to be the parents, I hope it is. In your house, uh, we have law makers, we have law enforcers. That's also the parents. And we have judges and juries, that's also the parents. So the children kind of... <laughs> Kind of, kind of get a tough deal there, right? But in the, the family is designed by God to be a place where children are loved and cared for. Their health is protected and preserved. They are fed and nourished physically. Uh, it's a place where they are taught. They're taught what's right and wrong, right? What's good and, and evil, they're taught, hopefully, to respect authority, beginning with the authority of their parents, but then a respect that would translate to other places. They would just respect other people, starting perhaps with siblings. And you know, if they can do that, <laughs> they can respect anybody. If you can, if you can, if you can get that one figured out. Um, but it is, it is a, a small, basic unit of social order by God's design. And the others were to grow out of that. And we might think the implications of that would be um, that, again, from, from that point of view, uh, institutions, other government institutions, so forth, are going to really grow out of the family like literally, in other words, as the population increased, um, you know, that you, you have a need for more uh, government, more social uh, order and that sort of thing. But it grows, it grows from the bottom up, not the top down. That the family, the parents, remain the primary authority figures for their children. And that's important. And it's increasingly important in the world we're living in. That we need to say out loud, um, parents do get to decide how to teach their children. 
That, that, is, that is one of the things God intended, uh, and it's inescapable if you, if you read through the scriptures. That is a responsibility that he lays on parents, and it is a right he gives to parents. And it is not a right to be usurped by any government, local, state, federal, or otherwise. In fact, uh, in school, I don't know, philosophy, literature, and that kind of thing, uh, we often refer to teachers teaching in loco parentis, the, uh, the Latin words, in place of the parents. That they are, they're, they're sort of serving on behalf of the parents, and to a certain degree, parents then give them the authority to teach and to discipline and other things that are necessary for that. But certainly not in a way that turns uh, that authority on its head and keeps secret what it is they're teaching children, teaching in a way where they uh, know is contrary or whatever because they think that they know best. And again, I don't want uh, to overstate that issue as if that's uh, some sort of mass crisis in front of us or, or that kind of thing, but it is just to say that is one of the fundamental implications of what God reveals in the beginning about the family is that that is a, a social unit by which he accomplishes his will. He gives authority to parents he gives a charge to parents about how to raise their children and the, and the rights that come along with that belong to them. Now, just a couple of points of application as we um, kind of wind down. What's, what, do we, what do we do in response to any of that? And as you can appreciate, so much more can be said. When you talk about family, it's like, I'm going to talk about family next week. What in the world is he going to talk about? Because there are whole books written on that subject. I could have picked a whole lot of things. But, um, but these are fundamental. And part of the reason this is so important is because, and, and this whole series is so important, is when we get uh, into some of these subjects, whether it be marriage or family, or the uh, uh, subject we'll be on last week or next week, which, by the way, parents um, may or may not be kid-friendly, uh, you... Maybe look out for more information and uh, by email this week to know um, whether or not you want your, your child to be there. But when you, we get into these su subjects and we look elsewhere in the Bible, we need to understand those scriptures in light of what's revealed in the beginning. Does that make sense? So what happens a lot of times, we might talk about marriage, or we might talk about parenting, or we might talk about family, and people will look at a Bible verse and go, oh, I'm not really sure that means what it sounds like it means because, you know, and they sort of massage that and, and, and make it sound like it means something else. And, the, and, and one of the important points is we need to understand the, uh, sort of the whole Bible in the context of the whole Bible, or any parts of the Bible in context of the whole Bible. But certainly we need to understand what's revealed later about the family, about marriages, and so on in light of what's revealed here. That the institution of marriage is ordered toward raising children and the family is the most basic unit, social unit through which he accomplishes his will. Now, two uh, points of application. Number one would be, there's kind of an exhortation here, a charge, a challenge to Christian couples in particular um, to have children and more of them. 
be fruitful and multiply. Uh, and so I would say, uh, let's take that seriously, you know, for what it says. In other words, it's the first commandment revealed in the scriptures. Be fruitful and multiply. And so for those um, Christian couples, again, by the way, if you're a Christian couple beyond a certain age, I'm not encouraging <laughs> for you to have more children or whatever. I, but I'm just saying, as a, in terms of embracing, how do we think about uh, the good life, let's receive what God says is good about it. And that would be for Christian couples to really go into adulthood or even young single Christians thinking about marriage and beyond, aspire to have children and more of them. Kevin DeYoung, again, in this article for The Case for Kids, uh, says this, I do not urge Christian couples to have as many children as possible but I do urge them to have more children. How many more, I cannot say. Many couples must weigh the risk pertaining to age, illness, miscarriage, or difficult pregnancies, but more than two kids and more kids than you think you can handle might be a good place to start. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good word right there. Again, there are all kinds of circumstances that dictate those kinds of decisions, and I, and I am nobody to tell you what the, the right decision in that. I don't know your circumstances. But a good place to start would be for the Christian family, aspire perhaps to have more than two kids and more than you think you can handle. If God says it's good, trust him. Test him on that, so to speak. I mean, you know, uh, walk by faith. But he goes on to say, the fertility gap between religious and non-religious Americans has been growing for two decades and now is wider than ever. That's to say, religious people have more children than non-religious people. And, and the gap is widening. Um, and he says, this gap is not enough to offset the uh, defections of nuns from the rank nuns, N-O-N-E-S. That is, as people leave the church, um, it, he goes on to say, if religious Americans increased from barely hitting the replacement rate, religious Americans have about 2.4 children uh, per woman. But the difference between three kids, uh, I, I, I said that wrong. If we... Uh, rose to the level of 2.4 children per woman in the religious communities. Um, the difference between three kids and two kids provided the culture of faith is thick enough in the home and the church to keep those kids among the faithful. That could be the difference between an America in which religion is declining and an America in which it is on the rise. Let me try to paraphrase that in case that didn't uh, translate very well and I stumbled through it but he's just saying there is a gap between religious and non-religious birth rates not a big enough gap but if it rose just to the level of 2.4 the difference between having two kids or deciding to have a third like even that difference if it raised that uh, level to 2.4 you might if you kept those children uh, by God's grace in the faith, 
it actually could be the difference between an America in which religion is declining and an America in which it is on the rise. Because secular populations are declining because of this very issue. The cruel irony of that is the secular, godless worldview that the West, including much of America, has embraced is one in which if we actually believe it, if we actually believe in that secular worldview and live by those principles, doing so will actually lead to our own destruction. It is a cruel irony. But embracing that ethic that then produces these abysmally low birth rates um, actually leads to the, uh, theoretically, the extinction there of those societies. But again, the good news is Christian community, the Christian community specifically that has a Bible that says, here's what God says about it. If we just believe that and then live by it, um, that could be enough of a change factor uh, to really turn around, particularly the decline of Christianity in the West. So that's one one, uh, sort of implication or application point, just having more children. The second would be for the rest of us, or maybe for all of us, supporting families and pro-family public policies in, in whatever way uh, we might be able to support on a personal level. Many of you do that as grandparents who help take care of your grandchildren. Maybe during the week, you're, you're part of the help for um, mom to work part-time or, uh, or just to go have mom's morning out because otherwise she's going to go nuts if she's there all the time, or whatever the case may be, and you're supporting that in that way. But we ought to be supportive of pro-family public policies, and there are all kinds of things that really do matter. I mean, things like ones that we have tax credits for having children, tax benefits of being married. That actually is preferred, there's given preferential treatment by society and so on. Different things of that sort that would actually encourage, incentivize and support families on a public level or support parents in having children and having more of them. We ought to be champions of that in the Christian community. Why? Because God says the family is good. It's really good and it's really, really important so much so that on a certain level, literally, uh, the future of any civilization depends upon the, the degree to which we embrace the goodness of the family. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word. And I thank you, God, for all that you've revealed that is good. 
Uh, Lord, I acknowledge my own uh, weakness, frailty, and out of that, my ability to, uh, to make sober and heavy a subject that really is good and joy-filled and hope-filled and all of that. And so, Lord, I pray that any of my words that are not worth holding on to, God, that you would just cause them to blow away like chaff in the wind and that what is true and uh, worthy of holding on to and remembering and living by, Lord, that that would remain. But God, we do pray for uh, a renewed embrace of the goodness and the truth that you've revealed about the family. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as a Christian community, bless us and cause us to be fruitful and to multiply, to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord with the expectation that every one of them by your grace and power will belong to you, follow you, worship you and live to the praise of your glory. And we believe, Lord, that um, through obedience to your word, living as you've commanded, Lord, that that is a means by which the world can be changed. And so, Lord, would you just lead us to take whatever steps of obedience are called from us, one by one and as a church. And we yield to you all things in Jesus' name. Amen.